Now you'll notice that there is a connection, and I pointed this out last time, between the verses that go before this. This is the confidence 14 which we have before God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. And then we have an example. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, that is, he shall pray, and God will for him give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. So let's start first with the sin that doesn't lead to death. And I half-jokingly said last week that I hope every sin doesn't uh, lead to death (laughs) because... Look, you know, uh, sin is obviously something that we as Christians wrestle with. And the key as believers who are growing is you want your life to be on a trajectory where you are sinning less. You will never be sinless, but hopefully you are sinning less. And hopefully the trajectory or the direction of your life, if you could look back on the last year, the last two years, five years, you could say, you know what, I am not caught up in the things that I used to be caught up in. Hopefully you're not caught in a pattern of habitual sin and you are walking strong with the Lord. You're going to have your moments. You're going to have your hiccups, but you're not caught in a pattern of habitual sin. And here's what the Bible says. In 1 John 5, 16, it says, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, the word sin here is hamartano, and that is not leading to death. So This is now, notice that the person is a brother. So we would assume here this is a Christian. This is a brother or sister in the Lord. And we could also imply that when uh, John talks about a sin that leads to death, he may well still be speaking of a brother or a sister. Now, last week I told you that maybe one of the easiest ways to solve this is to see that the sin that leads to death is the apostate, early Gnostic heretics who were teaching a false gospel about Jesus, denying his humanity, uh, redefining him. And since they had walked away from the one who is the life and gives life, then they would commit the sin unto death. And so we could see that as a spiritual death because they would not have eternal life coursing through them. If you don't have the son, you don't have eternal life. And there you have it, open and shut case, but it may not be that simple. Because as you read more on these verses, there are a lot of commentators who believe that the topic here is not spiritual death, rather it is physical death. And so there are are obviously a whole host of things that people do, believers do, that they fall into sin. Some sins we would just say, you know, we weren't looking to get ourselves in trouble, we were just kind of blindsided. We were maybe caught up in the heat of the moment. Uh, It wasn't a forethought. We weren't planning something, and we just simply failed, and we fell into the flesh. We let the flesh dominate the spirit, and we got in trouble. But the Bible does talk about the difference between a premeditated sin and a sin where you just simply fall into it. You didn't plan on it, but there it is, and there's all kinds of things we can talk about in our culture that could cause that to happen. But the immediate setting here is someone seeing a brother committing a sin. And if we were to see that happening, we should ask God. We should pray for that person. So first and foremost, application for you is if you know a brother or sister is in trouble. Let's say that you know a Christian friend who is uh, walking into the fire, standing on the railroad tracks. Maybe they've been... uh, pulled away by a false gospel, they're being led astray, or maybe morally they're beginning to give way to their biblical principles. There's a whole host of things. You, you guys could probably picture faces tonight where you know that there's people in your past as a believer that they're nowhere to be found tonight. They've fallen off the grid. They're not walking with the Lord. And I, I could talk to you about a lot of even public uh, figures that have come out and denied the faith and, and things like that. So Here we have a brother committing a sin, and this is seen. It's obvious. It's not gossip. It's something that you know. It's something that you've observed. And the first thing you're to do is not to gossip about that person. (laughs) The first thing that you're called to do, at least as it relates to 1 John, is to do what? 
You should pray for them. And you, you can go to the Lord for that person and just say, Lord, I know that this person is in trouble. I know they're headed in a uh, dangerous direction. And I'm, I'm just going to pray. I'm going to intercede. I, I don't know about you. I don't know how much of your prayer life, if you were to take a pie and break it down, how much of your prayer life has to do with prodigals, people straying from the truth, etc. Maybe there are public figures that you know have compromised the gospel. And, uh, you know, you've, you've heard that they're now uh, maybe uh, compromising on an essential Christian doctrine, uh, all of that. So we would assume that John's readers in the first century knew the difference between a sin unto death and a sin not to death. We would assume that, but we don't know for sure. But we could know this. They would know which kind of sin it was depending on the outcome. <laughs> Can I get a witness? Because if a person's dead, then perhaps they committed the sin unto death. <laughs> and if they're still upright and breathing, they didn't. Amen? All right, that's one way you could tell. But... Before we move on, let me just say that I suppose in our day and age, we have to talk about what sin actually is. Because if you were to say to someone, you know, brother, you're caught up, you're embroiled in a sin, we might have a debate within the professing Christian church about what sin actually is. What is sin? Do you know that there are denominations right now, mainline denominations, that were once strong in the word of God that are completely bankrupt, they, they do not hold the biblical line when it comes to biblical ethics and, and the like. So I don't want to assume for a moment that everybody would agree on what sin is. What is sin? Well, hamartano in the Greek here is simply a word that comes from hamartia, and it means to miss the mark. Sin is to miss the mark. It's to miss the bullseye. Right now, we're in the baseball playoffs, so you could say it's to get a target from your catcher and you throw a ball instead of a strike. We know how good major league pitchers are, but they're going to miss, right? They don't always hit their spot, and that is simply a human frailty. We all miss the mark. What is the mark? Well, interestingly enough, Torah, the Hebrew word for Torah, means to hit the mark. So when you are doing what God's Torah says, or the law says, you are hitting the mark. Sin is to miss the mark. You say, well, what is the mark? What is the bullseye? Well, if you look at uh, the immediate setting, look at verse 17, skip one verse ahead. It says, all unrighteousness is sin. There's a definition of what sin is. Sin is all unrighteousness. So just to put it in terms that maybe we can uh, understand a little bit easier, sin is everything that's wrong, everything that's harmful or hurtful, but it's defined by God and not by culture. So sin ultimately is all wrongness. Unrighteousness is wrongness, but you have to take that in the sense of God's law. Write this down if you're taking notes. 1 John 3, 4, just two chapters back, says sin is lawlessness. In my notes, sin is coming short of God's standards. It is a failure to do what is right according to God's standards. It is basically a failure to love God and love others as we are called to. It is often the opposite of that which is right and good. It is, by contrast, hurtful, destructive, Dishonoring to God, it can hurt you, it can hurt others. This is the definition that we have in mind as we talk about seeing someone sinning. We're not talking about, you know, personality quirks now. We're not talking about this personality, I don't click with this person or whatever. We're talking about something that could be defined as sin. And we know that there's something more that the Bible requires of believers than just praying for people that we see sinning. What is the other thing that the Bible calls us to do? Jesus points it out in Matthew 18, and I wish we'd do more of this, but here's what it is. Let's turn over there. Matthew's the first gospel. Let's go to and see what Jesus said about this very topic. Matthew 18, and we'll begin in verse 15. Here's the words from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, If your brother sins, go and show him his fault, Matthew 18, 15, what's your Bible say? In private. 
Don't go and tell your 10 closest Christian friends about the problem with this other person. Oh, you wouldn't believe what's been happening. You really need to pray for them. No, what you're supposed to do is pray for them alone in your prayer closet, if you will, and go to them privately. If the church did a better job of this, we could avoid a lot of nonsense, amen, in the church. We go to them privately. Why do we go privately? Because our goal is to protect their reputation because we're not looking to soil anybody. We're not looking to hurt anybody. In fact, the goal of any kind of approach like this is always one thing. What's the one thing you're trying to accomplish? Restoration. Your goal, if you see someone sinning, is to go to them the way you would want someone to go to you if you were blowing it. You wouldn't want someone to get up on a roof with a, you know, a horn and begin to announce your sins to the community. That's not what the love of Christ is about. So you go to that person and you make sure you have the facts straight and you make sure you're seeing things correctly. And you go to that person in private. This is what our Lord said to do. And he says, go uh, show him his fault in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. And when you look at the idea of winning your brother, it's an interesting word because it means that you've won him in the sense of saving him from further catastrophe. A way that you define the word win here is you've saved him from further harm. So the motivation to go to someone privately is to stop the process early enough to where it doesn't get worse where the snowball doesn't run further down the hill and become something that is bigger and can't be stopped, amen? Let me give you an example. They say, the experts on the cults say, the best time to get somebody, if they're talking to a cultic leader or uh, in trying to embrace a movement, is to get them early. Because if you don't get them early, they'll get further and further entrenched in the doctrine. If you don't catch someone early enough in a sin process, they'll get deeper and deeper into the sin. Everybody with me? And it becomes harder and harder to get out. And so you go to that person and you try to win them. How would you win them? You simply try to speak truth into them and you just say, man, I'm concerned about you. This is not what you should be doing. This is not what God says about this or that. You, you know, it could be marriage. It could be morality, it could be business practices, it could be a number of different things. But if he does not listen to you, 16, Matthew 18, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every what? Fact may be confirmed, not conjecture, fact. If he refuses to listen to them, so here you have a process, tell it to the church, could be the elders of the church first, then perhaps the wider body. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Scholars putting the positive spin on this would say that that would be a potential convert. You gotta treat them as though they're not saved and try to win them back. So not, not an exclusion per se, but more so in the positive sense of winning them back. Some of you have a variant reading here and the variant reading says, if your brother sins against you, go and reprove him privately. Uh, the, this is a variant reading. Some um, of the early manuscripts, later manuscripts have against you, earlier manuscripts do not. If the person sinned against you, it's certainly more personal. <laughs> Amen? So you may be more motivated to talk to a person who sinned against you personally than someone who maybe is caught up in something that's not necessarily, you know, right in your circle. Some believe that against you is original, even though it's not in the earliest manuscripts because of what comes up in verse 21. Peter came and said to Jesus, Lord, how often shall my brother, what? Sin against me and I forgive him up to seven times. And so there are scholars that would say that maybe Verse 21 answers which reading is correct because of Peter's question. That's up for debate. But here you have a formula. You go to them privately. You go to them in love, the way you would want to be approached if you were falling in a certain situation. And just write this down for your notes. 
Galatians 6 says, you go to them in gentleness. Brethren, 6.1 of Galatians. Even if a man is caught in any trespass, a sinning brother, you who are spiritual, restore, keyword, such a one, in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, lest you be tempted. Galatians 6.1. Go back to 1 John. Let me just comment on this. So you go privately, you go in love, you go with the goal of restoration, and you go in gentleness and humility because you realize that you're human too and your approach does matter. So if you go wagging your finger in somebody's face, watch out because you got fingers pointing back at you, right? So if you come in humility, a person's going to be much more open to you. They're not going to think that you're on some soapbox telling them the way that they should live and you're perfect and and uh, I will say that, that there are people who, sadly, when they get approached, they want to point out everything wrong in your life. And I, I will say that if you've ever tried to approach somebody in humility and they start saying, well, in 1998, I know what you were up to. <laughs> what matters is if you're spiritual now. What matters if, is if your goal is restoration. And what your friend is trying to do to you is called deflection. See, they don't want the light on them, so they're going to try to point out all your weaknesses, even though the issue is about them and not about you. So this is a tendency for all us humans. Someone says something to us, and we get what? We're automatically totally open to everything they have to say. Oh, I love constructive criticism. <laughs> no. We get what? Defensive. Defensive. Back me into a corner, and I'll fight you. <laughs> right? And this is a human tendency. So maybe part of our prayer is, Lord, would you prepare this person to hear this truth? And I will tell you, I think timing does matter here. I think there's a setting and a timing to go to someone and to be prayed up and to say, amen. This is something to think about. I'm concerned about you. Look, if you come in love, uh, love obviously has a desire to, for the other person's best, no doubt. And I will say that Galatians 6.2, for those of you who are taking notes, says, when you do this, you will fulfill the law of Christ, and the law of Christ is love. And so there is a sin that doesn't lead to death. We should pray for that person, the first part of 1 John 5 16, they're our brother or sister. They may committing, be committing something not leading to death. We pray. We do what Jesus said. And uh, there's a promise here. We ask and God will, for him, give life to those who commit sin not leading to death. Now, we'll get to the tougher part in a moment. But just to, to kind of round out this first part, we are to pray we are to approach, and there's a way to do this. And I think there's a one parallel passage I want to point out to you. It's in the book of James, and it's just a few pages back in your New Testament, James 5. So take 1 John 5 with James 5. Notice similar themes of prayer, confession, calling back uh, people who stray from the truth back to the fold. Here's the way James puts it, James 5.14. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. The word sick in Greek here means feeble, without strength. Some debate as to whether or not this is actually a physical sickness or something's going on spiritually or both. For example, Jesus approached the lame man. He said these words, Do you want to get well? Now, if you're the lame man, what was he lame? 38 years sitting by the pool? You, your response could be, get real. Do I want to be made well? Every time the water bubbles, I try to get in there. You guys know the story. But Jesus' question is asked for a reason because there are some people, frankly, who don't want to get well. They're perfectly content, stuck in a cycle of sin. I'll give you an example, and I'm not trying to beat up on the homeless community, but there are people in the homeless community who are there, and they've decided that that's where they want to be. And you can offer them all sorts of band-aids, but until they really want to get out, 
they're probably going to stay stuck in a cycle. Now, I could walk that out to a number of different areas of sin where we could all say, ouch, right? Because my question to you and to me would be, do you want it to stop? Do you really want to get well? Or are you most comfortable stuck in your sin cycle? There are people, unfortunately, because of human nature that are stuck. So this person has gotten to a point in James 5.14 where they call for church leadership. They say, come, pray for me. And I want you to notice that it is their uh, initiating of the uh, call for prayer, which is a factor here. Because we don't know everything that's going on in everybody's lives. But if someone picked up the phone and called the church and said, I'm in trouble and I need the elders to pray for me, um, that would be one expression of this text. It may not in every case be only about physical healing in James 5. So they come. He says, let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith. You could say the prayer in the will of God, 1 John 5, 14 and 15. Will do what? It will restore. Maybe we could say give life to the one who is sick or feeble or without strength. And the Lord will raise him up. Perhaps this is a picture of the life that God promises to give to that person who's hurting. And if he has committed sins, they will be what? Forgiven. Now notice from 1 John 5, 16 to James 5, the issue is lands once again at sin that may need to be forgiven. And it is at that point that this person who has asked for prayer, and we would uh, submit here, confess, because here's what it says. Therefore is a connecting word, James 5, 16. Therefore, always taking now, therefore, with the previous context, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Keep reading. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. It did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, remember 1 John is all about the early Gnostic heresy, redefining Jesus, etc., and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death. There, it, sh- it sure sounds like spiritual uh, discussion here. And will cover a multitude of sins. Can you see it, brethren? The connection from 1 John 5 to James 5. In both cases, there's something going on with this person. Not every sickness is a result of sin, back to 1 John 5. But sometimes we're sick because of sin, and that, not in every case, please hear what I'm saying. And so that seems to be the potential setting of James 5 as well. There's a brother, sister in trouble. Maybe it is simply a physical thing going on, a thorn in the flesh. Maybe it is a whole host of things that have happened to them. Maybe they let some dark things into their life. And they're like, what do I do now? I want to I get back to the Lord, but how do I, what's my step? How, how do I you know, get up again? How do I get back in the game? This is where we should be praying for one another. Amen? I remember a multitude of times when we've prayed as pastors over people who have been sick and we've anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord. And one of our pastors said, if, if there's anything that you feel like you need to confess right now, uh, and based upon the book of James, I would invite you, you know, if there's any sin that you feel like you need to confess, and that's just being true to the biblical text. And it might be uncomfortable in the moment, but maybe that person needs to get something off their chest. And we are told to confess our sins one to another that we may be healed. If the goal of this kind of family approach in the church is healing and restoration, then we won't hesitate. Now, I'm not saying that you should announce your sin you know, from the top of the church building. But I'm saying that you should have at least a trusted enough small community in your life where you could say, I am wrestling with this. And, and we've got to be mature enough to be able to say that to somebody and to receive it from somebody. Because sometimes it's hard to receive that from somebody. 
Somebody might want to open up to you and you're like, dude, I, I, don't, I don't want to go there. And it's like, no, that's part of our responsibility. Now, I'm not talking about opening up the confessional. <laughs> For those of you with a Roman Catholic background, you, you know what I'm saying. I'm just talking about a, a place that you could be in life where you feel like you need to get this off your chest before the Lord and have somebody pray for you and with you. Now, much of our confession is just directly to the Lord, but this seems to be a more extreme case. And so we need to get the body of Christ involved. And here in James, it would be the leaders. Now, let's look at the second half of verse 16. Now, there is a sin, part B, leading to death. That's our title. I do not say that he should make requests for this. Now, if it's still a brother or sister in view, then the sin leading to death is a believer who sins and it leads to death. And the call is, get this, don't pray for them. <laughs> and all God's people said, say what? Gulp? Now, what does this mean? Well, one scholar I was reading this week said that if the person's dead, you don't have to pray for them. <laughs> Uh, I mean, that's pretty obvious, right? We don't, necess we don't need to pray for the dead, and, I, and I'm not going to assume that you all know that, but, but the dead are where they are. And uh, there is some theology in Roman Catholicism, perhaps other movements, that say your prayers would matter if someone's already left this life. But frankly, uh, when you're absent from the body, you're either with the Lord or you're not. And your prayers are not going to change that. So um, this is what one view is that you don't need to pray anymore because the Lord's already dealt with that person and obviously uh, they're gone. And so that's it. And if they're a brother, they're with the Lord and the Lord will deal with them. But what would a sin unto death be? And does the Bible give us examples? Yes, many examples. Let me just run through a few. You remember uh, Nadab and Abihu, they were Aaron's sons. They offered strange fire before the Lord in Leviticus 10, verses 1 through 3. Just take, taking notes with me. And the Lord killed them both, killed both of Aaron's sons. And all we know from the text, it's a very obscure text, is that they were doing something unauthorized before the Lord. In the wrong way, with the wrong attitude. Maybe they came in in the wrong way. Uh, some people say maybe they were intoxicated. I don't know what was going on, but the Lord killed both of Aaron's sons on the spot. Do you remember Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6? They have the ark on the cart, and it starts to wobble, and Uzzah extends a hand to try to save it from falling, and the Lord killed him right on the spot. And David was angry that the Lord had killed Uzzah, but you go and do a little bit more homework on 2 Samuel 6 and you find out that they were not carrying the ark in the right way to begin with. They were already outside of God's will. It was supposed to be carried on poles and it was covered in a certain way and only by priests. They already had broken God's law. And when Uzzah reached out to, to steady the cart, if you will, or steady the ark, he touched what was holy and God killed him on the spot. Our God is holy and these, these are texts that are in our Bible. How about Achan? He disobeys God and he gets stoned in Joshua 6 and 7. How about Korah questioning Moses' leadership and Korah and company, Numbers chapter 16. And the ground opened up and swallowed him and all that were on the side of Korah. Bye-bye. <laughs> and how about Absalom, David's son? who tried to steal the throne from the rightful king. He had long hair, long, beautiful hair. He was known for his hair. And his hair got him caught on the limb of an oak tree. And he was a sitting duck. And he was killed. And th these are just a few examples. I was reading J. Vernon McGee, who talked about how Moses misrepresented God by striking the rock twice in anger when God said just to speak to it. And God said, you're not going to lead the people into the promised land. Because of what you did. You did not treat me as holy. God is holy. And some of us sitting here tonight might say, well, whew, I'm just so glad that that's the 
Old Testament until you turn to the New Testament. And you meet a couple named Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter 5. And they come, and they, they look really spiritual, and they say, we sold this piece of land, and here's all the money. And they lay it at the apostles' feet, but it wasn't all the money. And you find out as you read the text and you study a little bit that they didn't have to give all the money. They could have given whatever they wanted. And by the way, the Bible does hold up that personal land possession is a good thing. It's okay. And that's, not, that's another topic. Anyway, and so they lie about it. And the husband and wife are both killed on the spot. Bam, dead. Thank you. <laughs> Carry them off. The undertaker comes in. And Peter simply says this. Why has Satan filled your heart? You've not lied to men. You've lied to God. In 1 Corinthians 5, there's a man sleeping with his father's wife. And Paul says, I've already turned the guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord Jesus. 1 Corinthians 5, 5. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 11, more New Testament examples, says that some people were coming to the agape feast in the Corinthian congregation and they were getting drunk on the wine and eating all the food before other people got off work. And Paul said, that's why some of you are sick and some of you have fallen asleep. And fallen asleep is another way to say some of you have died because of it, because you dishonored the Lord. And then I want to show you one, and it's in Revelation chapter 2, one New Testament example, because I know this is about all you can take. Revelation chapter 2. Let me just tell you what I think is going on here, generally speaking. I think that these cases are exceptions. I think we could probably walk this back and see that these people had knowledge and maybe they were already headed in wrong directions. But I think that if we were going to take a category, we would say the, these cases represent people who misrepresent God and do not honor him as holy. They misrepresent God and do not honor him as holy. And Revelation 2 is the final one I'll give you in the New Testament. Here's what it says. Skip down all the way to verse 20. Church at Thyatira addressed by Jesus, I have this against you. Revelation 2, 20. That you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray so they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. Very important. I gave her a space to repent. And that would seem to be that people were warning her, coming to her, challenging her. She was given a space to repent, and she does not want to repent of her immorality. Here's the judgment. Behold, I will throw her on a bed of sickness, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they, here's some hope, unless they repent of her deeds, she's a teacher, and I will kill her children with pestilence, and all the churches will know that I am he who searches the minds and hearts, and I will give to each of you according to your deeds. But I say to you, to the rest who are in Thyatira, who do not hold this teaching, they don't follow her, who have not known the deep things of Satan, that tells you what she was into, as they call them. I place no other burden on you. I don't want you to be overburdened if you're trying to be true to me. Nevertheless, what you have Hold fast until I come. Back to 1 John chapter 5. So you can see that this sin unto death could have different expressions, but in the end, it is something that is serious enough where God calls the person home. If the person is a brother or sister, then they're called home, and the question would be why? Let's just assume for a moment that they're secure. There's a debate about, you know, uh, eternal security, but let's just assume for a moment that they're secure in their salvation. They're truly a believer. Why would then God take somebody home? Well, most likely because they may be leading other people astray. It could be that they don't dishonor the name of Christ anymore. 
the Revelation 2 passage that we just looked at together would seem to be that there's a lot of space that God gives a person to repent. Hebrews chapter 12 says our God disciplines the ones that he loves. So I would imagine that there's a long rope of grace here, a long stretch of grace that we all have that God will extend to us and he'll keep it coming and he'll keep it coming and he'll keep it coming. But at some point, could we uh, be in a place where God just says enough is enough or he deals with us in a very severe way? I'll tell you on a positive note, (laughs) I'm surprised that God is as patient with certain people on the planet right now as he is. Because there's people in settings theologically and morally that have been on the wrong track for a long time. Amen? And it shows me that God is very patient with you know, people who are in these categories. But here's an example where God says, don't pray for a group. And this is Jeremiah 7. Just write it down for your notes, 16 through 19. As for you, he says to Jeremiah, don't pray for this, these people. Do not lift up a cry of prayer for them. Jeremiah 7, 16 through 19. Do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. Do you not see what they are doing in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood. The fathers kindle the fire. The women need dough to make cakes for the queen of heaven. That's a false idol. They pour out libations to other gods in order to spite me. Do they spite me, declares the Lord? Is it not themselves they spite to their own shame? About two other passages I could read for you in Jeremiah with the same basic premise, but one of them adds this. Jeremiah says back to the Lord after he says, don't pray for them. Jeremiah says, but the prophets, the false prophets, keep telling them nothing's bad, nothing bad's going to happen. Everything's cool. Everything's good. And the Lord says, I didn't send them. I didn't speak to them. They do not represent me. And this would be an extreme case where God has warned through the prophets over and over again and finally judgment has come and God says, don't pray for them anymore. That is a sobering place to be. And I want to make it very clear to all of you who are listening tonight. I believe that these are extreme exception cases because we know how merciful and patient our God is. And we know that we've been instructed to pray. And we, we don't always know where something is leading somebody. But to wrap this up, and this piggybacks on something I said last, last week, F.F. F. Bruce, eminent Greek scholar, says, with regard to such men, those that you don't pray for, John may have felt much as the writer to the Hebrews did in another situation, that it is impossible to renew them again to repentance. You can look at Hebrews chapter 6, especially verse 4. Let me just say this. If, if the people that have committed the sin unto death are the false teaching heretics who knew better and still held to their strong-willed opinion and redefined Christ, then they've led a, a bunch of people astray. And essentially, John is saying they were never with us. They, were, they left because they, were, they, they didn't remain with us because they never really were of us. 1 John 2, 18. They were antichrist. They were, maybe this will help, they were like Judas. They were wearing a mask in our congregational setting, but they never belonged to the Lord. And it would be something like this. Don't pray for them because their doom is sealed. And I'll say this, even though You know, some people think of Judas and they get all, you know, they try to figure out all the layers of Judas. The Lord knew what was going to happen to Judas. And even though Judas chose to do what he did, the Lord already knew that Judas was not going to return and he was going to hang himself. And his so-called apology was not going to be really from his heart. And so that this is where we end up. We end up with Uh, Two categories in verse 16. And I want to come back to the positive one because this is what most of us are going to deal with. Most of us are going to deal with brothers or sisters that are committing sins and they're not going to die from them. And the Lord's not going to take them home. But they're going to reap the consequences of them. 
So let me ask a personal question. I'll ask it of me and I'll ask it of you. What's my role in that? Is part of my thinking as a believer to go and reach out to those who may be hurting, confused, off track? How big of a category of believers do you think that that might represent? Probably bigger than we know. In fact, if you go out witnessing in our city, you'll probably meet a lot of people who have some sort of church background. Yeah, I used to go to Sunday school or this used to happen or whatever. Not a lot of people with no Christian experience at all. There's some, but there's a lot of people who have fallen away. They just fell off the track. And that could be a big part of ministry. In fact, I will tell you that Living Truth in many ways has become that type of church where a lot of people have had difficult situations, maybe bad experiences, and, you know, this has been a healing place for for many, and praise God for that. Okay, so you have those two categories. Now, in verse 17, we just have really a definition. All unrighteousness is sin, and there is a sin not leading to death. And so, look, Let me make this personal just for a second. The room is filled with people who have made blunders this week. Can I get a witness? Anybody want to confess right now? Right? (laughs) We make mistakes all the time. I am so grateful for God's grace. I am so grateful that I have the righteousness of Christ and positionally I'm right before God. I'm not going to be more right than I am right now, no matter what my behavior, Bible reading, etc. looks like. But I want to honor his name. Let me give you an example in the life of Jesus. Peter is getting ready to fall on his face. And Jesus says to Peter, Peter, Satan's been demanding permission to sift you like wheat. Oh, thanks, Lord. I'm so glad that you pulled back the veil and you know, let me know about what's going on in the spiritual places and so forth. But I have prayed for you. Your sin's not unto death, Peter. I've prayed for you that when you return, you will strengthen your brethren. Now, this is going to lead us into our final verse tonight. And here's the thing. Satan demanded permission to sift Peter. And the Lord gave Satan a little space in Peter's life. Enough to stumble him some on that night that fateful night where he denied the Lord. But Satan was still on Jesus' leash, if you will. This leads us into the final verse. Here's what it says. We know that no one who is born of God, ESV, I think, has this best, keeps on sinning. But he who was born or begotten of God keeps him, notice, and the evil one does not touch him. Him. Now, the one begotten of God there, although there's some different renderings and different versions, the one begotten of God, consensus of scholarship, believes that's Jesus, the only begotten of the Father, not created, but sent in the incarnation. So it is Jesus who keeps him, make it personal, keeps you, and the evil one, what? Does not touch him. Uh, this is a present tense rendering from one commentator. We know that everyone who is born of God does not continue in sin, but the one who was begotten or born of God, i.e. Jesus, is keeping him, and the evil one is not touching him. So we have an advocate from the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. But the whole setting here is about sin, and we know that the devil tempts believers to sin. He's called the tempter for a reason. How does this work? For example, if the evil one doesn't touch believers, why are there so many believers laying strewn all over the battlefield? Well, here's the thing. The Lord is sovereign, but there's times when he allows Satan a little foothold in our lives. We, we certainly have a part to play in that. But I can think of, for example, Job. Job was a righteous man. And Satan wanted at Job. And if you read the book, 
the Lord's the one really initiating all of it. And this, as the story goes by, Job gets thrashed. I mean, that's an understatement, right? And he loses everything, but he becomes a picture of Jesus, the most innocent sufferer who ever lived. And at the end of Job's life, God restores everything back to him double. And he lives a long life, and he sees four generations, and he's restored back to life. But in the midst of that, it was terrible. Now, I bring this up because we know that everyone who's born of God does not keep on sinning. That is, you have a new nature, you're born of the Holy Spirit, and your new nature doesn't sin because your new nature is the Holy Spirit and you're regenerate, amen? What's the problem? You have an old nature. <laughs> and until you are fully redeemed, you get a new body, you're still gonna wrestle with this battle. And there's gonna be times, look, in the inner man, to put it the way Paul put it, I delight in the law of the Lord. I wanna do it every moment of every day of my life. But I find another law that works in these members of mine. And that other law, the law of the flesh, is often pulled away to do the wrong thing. The right thing that I want to do, I don't always do. The wrong thing that I hate, I sometimes find myself doing, Romans 7. This is the battle. And so that's why, just taking a step back for a second as we wind down, when you feed this, the Spirit, when you walk in the Spirit, when you are in the Word of God, when you are in fellowship, worship and praise, when you're doing the things that the Spirit feeds, if you will, or blesses, then you are going to tend to walk in holiness. But when you don't, when the flesh gets the upper hand, then sometimes you'll do that which is contrary to your new nature. And you won't like it. Here's an example. You become a Christian and you used to be able to get away with sin all day long, 24-7, and you could wake up the next day and just do it again. Hair of the dog, baby! I don't even know where that came from. But, but now you become a Christian, and there's something new that has entered into the equation. It is called conviction. <laughs> now, it's not condemnation. It's conviction. And there are times when you're walking over to things that used to be easy to walk over to, and there's something going on. There's a power. There's a, there's a still small voice saying, uh-uh, no, no, don't go. Don't do that. That's dumb. Hey, how many times have you walked down that road? How many bumps do you have on your head? How many scars do you have to prove it? Dot, 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 dot. I think I'm going to go anyway. <laughs> <laughs> right? Okay, okay, okay. But the, that's the battle now. The battle is between wanting to do what the spiritual man should be doing, but finding another law still there, right? And, you know, I'll tell you an old story. The, there's an Indian chief, you know, uh, he gets saved, and he talks about that he feels like he has two dogs inside of him that are constantly fighting. One's a good dog and one's a bad dog, and somebody asks him, oh, chief, you know, which dog wins? And he says, dog I feed the most. And that's really what it comes down to. That's the battle between the flesh and the spirit. And so the one who is born of God, born again, end of 18. Uh, I'm sorry, the one who is begotten of God. I, I do believe that that points to Jesus. ESV protects him. You have a protector. And the evil one does not touch him. Now, I know some of you are in, in some situations, even tonight, where you're either personally experiencing or watching someone go through something tough. And you look at verse, a verse like this and you're like, well, if the evil one doesn't touch a believer, uh, what's going on with this person or that person? And here's what I would say. Sometimes the Lord allows some wiggle room for the enemy in our lives. I don't understand why. He has his good purposes for it. I think of Job that it all comes out to be good in the end. Uh, I can't always tell you why. Dr. Walter Martin used to say that the, the handle to the door is on our side, and if we open the door, God may allow Satan in to discipline us. Or, but in Job's case, he didn't do anything wrong. 
And so I hold out hope here, and I would tell you, you should as well, that even if something's happening that I don't believe that a Christian's ever demonically possessed, but let's just say that a Christian is feeling a good measure of oppression, like darkness, and it's like, what's going on here? Well, we, we've got to pray for that person. We've got to call upon the one who is their protector to step in and get the, the enemy out, get the rubble out. Just bow your hearts with me. Father, whew, this is a heavy text tonight, I, I know, and, and some heavy concepts, uh, but thank you that it ends on such a beautiful note. The Son of God is our protector, and the evil one does not touch us. We know you are sovereign. We know that you've got us. You know, earlier in the book of Job, Satan said, I can't get at him because you put a hedge about him, and I believe that's what you do for believers. You surround us with a, a wonderful hedge, and if you do allow something like a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to buffet someone like Paul, Paul said you did that for his humility because uh, of all the pro, uh, insight he had gotten, revelations, and you have your reasons, Lord, but I'm crying out for the saints tonight that you would lift burdens, that you would cast away darkness, um, that you would heal if there's maladies or ailments or even spiritual weakness tonight. Lord, uh, here we are all breathing, enjoying so many blessings, and we are people who can pray for anyone, including ourselves, who may be in a tough spot, have a spiritual need, and we can pray. And we can ask you to lift up and bring life and restore and renovate. Would you just take a moment in quietness right now. If there's faces, names, situations where you want to just intercede right now, let the Holy Spirit lead you and just begin to cry out for God's deliverance that God, according to this text, would bring life to that person, restoration to that person, maybe to you personally, just take a moment, seek his face.